Okay. Hey, before we get into the message, how many of you received one of these on the way in? Awesome. Good job, kids at the door. Some of you may have found them on your seats if you didn't get one. There's some extras. So uh, I want to share with you an awesome thing that the Lord has been doing that I have been uh, blessed to be a part of over the last seven months. Uh, So last year, uh, my friend Steve, not Steve here, Steve from another church. There's lots of Steves in the world. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, Steve called me and he left me a voicemail. He said, Chris, give me a call. I want to sell you something. And I thought, that's weird. And so I called him. I was like, what do you have to sell? And he's like, well, I'm sorry. It's not really a sale. Like, I don't have anything for sale. But I want to tell you a thing uh, that the Lord has been doing and invite you to be a part of it. So uh, in uh, 2020, remember COVID, craziness, the whole world is wild and wacky. Uh, This pastor named Christopher Caputo, who lives in Malawi, reached out to a missionary named Bruce Ingram, who's here in the Northwest, and is with a missions agency called Action International. And Christopher said something along the lines of, Dear Bruce, I want you to train me to be uh, a pastor and a missionary. Now, that's kind of weird, but if you're a pastor or a missionary, one of the things that you get used to is that you get emails from third world countries, and like 90% of them are basically fishing. They're fishing for money because uh, they reach out to American Christians, and then they get American Christians to come to where they are, and then basically they kind of milk you for money while you train them spiritually, right? And they show up as long as the money's flowing, and then when the money's not flowing, they disappear like leaves in autumn, right? They just sort of fall rather quickly away. Uh, And so Bruce replied and just started the conversation. And what was interesting is that Christopher had no desire for money. It wasn't about money at all. It was genuinely an interest in knowing the Lord. And shortly after they started meeting, Christopher learned the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So Christopher had believed the prosperity gospel, uh, which in Malawi essentially works like this. It's like every other religion. If I do these religious things, then God has to give me these blessings. So if I'm over here cranking these levers and pushing these buttons just right, then God rains blessings down in my life in the form of different types of prosperity, usually having to do with our health and our wealth and our relationships, right? And so that is what Christopher had been taught. But then through talking with Bruce, he discovered the grace of God that is actually found in Jesus Christ. Now, the cool thing is when you're trained by somebody who's in Action International, they are unwilling to invest in you if you're going to take the treasure that God gives you and hold on to it and not do anything with it. And so while Christopher is being trained by Bruce, he's being told, now, after I teach you this, you need to find one or two individuals who are willing to meet with you, and then you need to share this same truth with them. And what's amazing is that Christopher was faithful. So Christopher took this gospel message and started sharing it with others. And soon there was a greater need to train people than Bruce could handle on his own. So within one year, it went from Christopher to having several clusters of mentor groups where there's different people who are like Christopher, who've learned the gospel, who want to be trained. And then that advanced one more year. So that's 2021 to twenty twenty to 2023. And, and now here we are. I get this call in May, and what has happened is it's gone from Christopher to a handful to a large group. And so now there were five groups in five different regions, which are like states in Malawi. And each of these groups had 10 to 15 people in them at that point in time who were interested in being trained as spiritual leaders of others. So I got asked, hey, we have too much work for the three of us And we want to expand to have five total pastors who are training. Now, we're still only at four, which means one of us has to pull double duty every month. Double duty right now means getting up at 3 a.m. so that you can log onto your computer at 4 a.m. and teach from 4 a.m. to 6 a.m., which I wish was an easier sacrifice. I'm not the sharpest pencil at 4 a.m., it turns out, um, but I'm working on it. And by the grace of God and the goodness of coffee, I'll get there. And so uh, these groups continued to grow to the point where now each of these groups has about 25 people in them, uh, and we have a total of 156 uh, Christian missionary workers under our training. Now, the crazy thing is when I started in May, we had just about 1,000 believers from what we could measure. This is the number that we were throwing around. And then in October, we had a trip down there, and we put on a leadership and a marriage conference, and they did a full census as they traveled the the five regions that we're involved in. And there are over 12,000 believers who have come to know the Lord. I know, it's really awesome since that time. It's really this incredible thing, and it's just, it's so wild because I feel 
so small in the face of this. I mean, I'm standing in my comfortable office, and I can turn the heat on to whatever temperature I want. I have uh, lights shining on me so that I can be clearly seen, and I'm able to broadcast a message from Ocean Park uh, to Falambe in Malawi to train these people. And I log in, and there they are. It's summer down there. It's in the heat. There's these tree trunks that have been cut down and put up, and there's a tin roof over them, and it doesn't cover everything. So there's like scattered light flying through where there's old rust holes and gaps and this sort of thing. And I see them. They're dripping. They're glistening because it's hot there. And I see them, and they're sitting there, and they're all just tuned in. And then they're taking this, and they're loving their nation with this. They're giving Jesus to the people around them. And what's wild is that in the, the, the spring last year, is there was these monsoons that hit, and so they had flash flooding, and much of the crops were wiped out. And so there's famine in Malawi. And we've been saying, like, do you need food? Do you need stuff to build houses? Because food and houses were lost. There was great death. Uh, many villages lost, lost over half of the people in the village during these things. And they're like, no, 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 we don't need food. We don't need houses. We just need more of Jesus. And so the, the number one thing that's holding them back from being able to continue their mission is Bibles. Uh, about half of the people we're training have Bibles right now in Chichewa, which is their native language. Uh, and some of them are English speakers, so they have English Bibles. But then as you go out from there, the number gets lower and lower. Can you imagine having a pastor who doesn't have the Bible? Who only has what he's been told and can just repeat those messages over and over again? Can you imagine trying to equip someone to know the Lord and to learn to teach biblical truth if they don't really have God's Word? It's a barrier. It's a big barrier. Quite frankly, every month we publish a lesson, or every two months we publish a lesson for them, and we give them a handout, right? And that's the Bible they have. So they get like 70 verses every two months. That's what they've got to train their congregations with. So it's a significant hardship, and their number one request is just resources to continue in ministry. Now, uh, somebody in our church has kind of thrown a challenge down, and they have um, laid out $500 as a matching gift, which I think is just the start, so that if our church is willing, that we'll give at least $1,000 to Bibles. Now, a Bible is $13 each, uh, and so 1,000 Bibles doesn't quite buy 100 Bibles. I think it's somewhere around 80 Bibles. Uh, but I think, quite frankly, that our church will probably do significantly more than that just because I know our church. But I'd, I'd like to suggest this. Uh, make this beyond what you normally give. You know, a number of years ago, a pastor laid out for a congregation I was in. He said, we have a giving opportunity, but I want you to pray about this as an above the tithe gift, which he meant above your regular giving. Not, not because he wanted to regulate what we gave, but because he said, I want to encourage you to trust the Lord more. And he said, maybe your above the tithe gift is only $10. That's okay. But some of you, your above the tithe gift is more than that. You already know that because as soon as I started talking about that, your heart leapt at the opportunity to be able to give to these people. And so you've got this flyer here. It's got some basic instructions on it. You'll notice we're talking about it after the offering because it's not about uh, just striking the opportunity while it's there. I don't want to just emotionally motivate you. I want to spiritually motivate you to ask the Lord, Lord, how do you want me to partner in this? Some of you might only be able to partner in prayer. Praise God for that because this is a spiritual venture. It's not created by money. It's not created by the internet. It's created by the spirit of the living God moving in Malawi to create this revival there. Um, but we get an opportunity to partner with that. So read through this pamphlet. Consider what you uh, might be being called to give and then um, either bring that next week and bring it in the offering or you could bring it to the church office in the week. Some of you give online and I think there's a way to put a memo on line when you give if you'd like to give towards this. Um, and thank you for uh, your participation in this in advance. I know that our brothers and sisters in Malawi will rejoice as they receive the goodness of your gift and thank God uh, for your willing to be generous. Sure, yeah, you can give today. So uh, there's a couple places you can give today. Uh, there's a box by the sound booth there. It's a tan box. Um, Boy, I'm just laughing at the idea of, of it being too full. And then there's also a box outside of the secretary's office. It's a little white thing, so it's pretty inconspicuous, and you could put it in there. Both of them are... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we wouldn't, um, we're not taking any, any administrative funds out of this in any way. Um, there, there are, when you're transferring money internationally, the banks like to um, have post-it notes on the end of their fingers, but that's just the way that it is, so... Oh, sure. Yeah, so if you're giving today, it would be awesome if you could notate on your gift somehow that it's for Malawi. So um, I guess I can put some envelopes in the foyer right after church for people if they want to do that. Or if you're writing a check, you can write that in the memo line on your check for Malawi. So 
Um, I, you could write on the dollar bills, too. I've seen lots of people do that. And, and then other people be like, what's Malawi? But, you know, then we would know at least. So, okay, excellent, cool. Thank you very much. Hey, let's, um, yes. Thank you. Uh, Mrs. Coral Hughes has informed me that there are blank envelopes in the Welcome Center. So, Elaine, you're welcome. They're all coming your way. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hey, let's take a moment and pray as we get into God's Word today. Uh, Father, we thank you for this time that we've just had to sing praises to you in worship. We thank you for the leadership and the devotion that coming to you is to find refuge, a place of surrender, a God who is strong and able, the Lord of hosts. Father, we want to submit our hearts to you in this time and our minds to you. We are open to your working, and we desire what you would have for us. Father, so often we come to church with a burden, a thing that we need, and we just want to give that to you now and know that you will take care of it. And we ask, God, that you would share with us what your will is for us individually and a congregation. Lord, last week we talked about the fact that revival starts with hearts that are submitted to you because a revival is a personal relationship with you that impacts those around us. And so, Father, we pray that you would use this time to grow our personal relationship with you. And we pray that you would continue to pour yourself out on us that we might know you in your greatness and in your glory and that our hearts would find rest and peace in you and before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're talking about surrender continually here. And I'm going to reset my device because it appears to not be working. There we go. And today we're talking about trusting God. So our message today is to trust God. Has anybody done a low ropes course before or a high ropes course before? It's where you go and you do like these challenging exercises with a team of people and you're supposed to be pushed outside of your comfort zones. They're trying to grow you individually and then they're trying to grow you as a team as well to work together. So there is this thing that is called a trust fall when you do these exercises. Has anybody done the trust fall before? Okay, some of you have, some of you haven't. So I'll, I'll kind of make it a little bit of a thing for you here. So on the trust fall, what you do is there's a platform this would be a very low platform for the trust fall and very difficult. Usually it's at least four feet tall. And so you climb up to the platform and you're up there and you're facing nothing and then your team is behind you. And everybody kind of makes this inverted caterpillar and they stick their arms together like this. So the whole group is there and then you are supposed to cross your arms like this and lean back, which I'm not going to do right now because I'm not, this isn't a dumb fall, it's a trust fall. And you lean back you have to keep your body rigid, and then you fall. And it's supposed to be this building act of trust. Okay, so the first time I did this, I was uh, about 12 and a half years old. I was at a summer camp, and I was with the rest of my Boy Scout troop. And uh, we were all doing the trust fall, and I had a friend whose name was Seth, and Seth was a husky fellow, okay? So he, he had um, some extra cushion and some extra potential energy invested in the trust fall. And so we're all there for Seth. And Seth's really nervous because he's the heaviest guy in our, in our troop that day who's doing the trust fall. And we're all there, and the leader's like, you can do it, Seth. We will catch you. And he, Seth's like, I don't believe that you're going to catch me. And then we're like, but we will catch you, Seth. And so eventually Seth makes that lean back, and he's going, and then wham! We all go, and we catch Seth. And it is awesome. Now, I am at the opposite end of the body size spectrum as Seth. Uh, paper has more mass per square inch than I do, okay? I was a very skinny child. I was the kind of child that you could see elbows and knees before you could see anything else, right? I was asked if I wanted to model for a concentration camp exhibit at the <laughs> local museum, all right? It was, it was bad. It wasn't very good. Uh, you could count my bones when I got out of the shower, right? And so I go up, and I think, if they caught Seth, they are totally going to catch me. And I, the, the guy says they're ready. I say I'm ready. And I lean back. They let me down. They literally let me down. I hit their arms, and it was like one of those plastic gates in a factory. I just went right through. It was just like, boom, 
Bam. Now, thankfully, my potential energy was rather low, and I think that they broke the fall because I wasn't in a lot of pain. But I remember thinking, I, I don't think I can trust these guys. <laughs> I, think, I think they don't know how to support me, right? Now, when we're talking about trust, the reality is that some of us have had experiences like Seth where we haven't expected anyone or anything to be able to catch us. And somehow we've found ourselves okay in the midst of what feels like a potential life-ending event. And others of us have had experiences like I have, where you think that everything should be okay. There's demonstration that everything should be okay, but somehow the very thing, the very ones that you thought who were going to support you through your difficult moment, weren't there. And you have been let down. And it has hurt. And so I just want to acknowledge that as we talk about trust, that we're all coming from different places inside in our experience of trust. But I also want to recognize that we're all coming to the same one who is absolutely trustworthy. And so there's always going to be a journey for all of us from where we are right now to the place where we're absolutely trusting in God. And then the final point of acknowledgement is this. This is a journey of trust. We do not see in the way we will see in the future. And so our trust is always being tested. And there are going to be times until that moment where you open your eyes in eternity and see Jesus face to face that your trust will waver. And I want to assure you of this. God is gracious. He is trying to build your trust and build you up he is not looking to cast you out, but to draw you in. So no matter where you are as you hear this message, know that the Spirit of the living God is trying to build more faith in you, more trust in you towards Him so that He can lead you to greater and greater surrender. So with that being said, let's get into the text and the meat of the message today. If you want to surrender fully, learn to trust God. If you want to surrender fully, learn to trust God. Now, you'll notice that there's a key word in that sentence. Learn. Trust is learned. Distrust is learned. These are lessons that we gain over time, and sometimes we have to relearn trust because we've unlearned trust or we've abandoned our trust in the Lord. Now, I want to contrast several places in the Bible as we go through this message, uh, but as we do this, what we're going to see is that fear erodes trust, whereas faith is a process of building trust in the Lord. So we see this the first time in Genesis 3 during something that theologians call the fall, because we fall from the place that God created us to be. In Romans, it says that all have fallen short of the glory of of God. Now what this means is that we fall short of God's created purpose for us in our lives, which was to be his image bearers, bearers, his servants on the earth, and this is the place where we fell short the first time. It says in Genesis 3:1, "Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden?" And the woman said to the serpent, "We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden." But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, so at this point in time, shame has entered in. Shame is an identity issue where we cover ourselves up for fear of what others will perceive or see about us. Do you see fear starting to creep in? Fear that they are not what God created them to be. Now, this is a deep and tragic irony. 
Because how were they created to be? After whom were they created? They were created in the image of God. They were the only things in all of creation who were perfectly created to represent or shine forth the nature of God in all creation. So they became ashamed of that identity or purpose that the Lord gave them. They became afraid that they were less than what they actually were. Wow. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. What would you do if in your life you're sitting at home and all of a sudden you hear someone approaching your front door and something inside says that it is Jesus? How many of you would just be absolutely delighted? Like, oh my gosh, the King of Kings is showing up at my single wide today. He's showing up in my mini mansion on the beach. I hope I brushed my hair, and I hope the dog's hair has been swept up as well, right? Because you want to make a good showing for the Lord. But what are Adam and Eve's response? Man, they hide, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Okay, so are these little kids who want to surprise Dad? Are they going to pop out and be like, Hi, we're here! No, they're, they're, they're afraid. They're freaking out inside. They're hiding. Hiding is a result of fear. Did you know that everybody who walked into this room is hiding something today? Every single one of us. And some of us have been hiding it for so long that we can't even remember what it is. But we have a guard in our hearts over things from our past that we don't want to talk about with others, that we're unwilling to share because we're afraid even to look at it. So we all can feel and know this fear because we've all hidden things inside, right? And so we've been in the same place that Adam and Eve are in. Because the reality is, is if God walks into your heart and you were to open up those places of fear, so much healing and goodness would come in. We talked last week with the kids about, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And the one who opens the door, I will come in and I will dine with him. And when you look at Jesus dining with people in the New Testament, you know, the number one thing that I notice is healing. Healing is always present at those meals. Deep healing that transforms lives. And so if we would just be brave enough to let the Lord into those places of, of fear, the healing that would come in would be amazing. But Adam and Eve were deceived, and so they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Wow. So that's our basic nature. We have fear inside. And then the Bible does crazy things, like throws out these axioms and truths and commands that we like to downplay in America. We call them invitations because nobody can command us what to do, right? But this is a command. It comes in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways know, or your translation might say, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Wow. How does that work? How does that work where I know that I have fear inside and then the Bible just boldly steps up to me when I read it and says, trust and do not be afraid. Trust no one else but God. Rely on Him alone and know Him alone in your life so that your paths can be straight. It took me the longest time to figure this one out because when I'm hiking, I like the meandering path. There's more vistas and intrigue and interest it's not talking about your literal path. It's talking about the way of your life being successful. No dead ends in life that are a waste. No doldrums of despair because you know that God is with you and is working in you. That's what this is talking about. So how do we move from that place where we know the fear that Adam and Eve experience to the place where we start to trust God more and more? Well, we have to recognize and acknowledge that fear keeps us from surrender. And faith draws us into surrender. Fear keeps us from surrendering to the Lord. But faith brings us to that place where we open up just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Man, fear keeping us from surrender. I can see some key places in my life where I have been unwilling to surrender to God because of fear. The first time I was employed by a church, for uh, ministry, I was employed part-time as a youth pastor. 
and I've shared this before, I was a rather more irresponsible young man than I am a grown man, and I didn't keep up with the administrative aspects of my ministry, and the church that I was in wanted me to, but I wasn't picking up the hints. And so all of a sudden one day, I'm in the pastor's office for my monthly meeting, and he lets me know, Chris, the staff support committee has decided that it's time for you to not work here anymore. This was very shocking to me because I'd never heard of a staff support committee. And the first time I heard of them, I felt like they were punching me in the face, which is very not supportive. Let's just put it that way, right? And, and so it hurt. It hurt a lot because I, I loved my job and I loved the kids that I was serving there. And I have a fear of rejection. I have a fear of rejection. And so I was being rejected and it hurt. And I walked out of that meeting and in my heart, I said to the Lord, Lord, if this is what being a pastor is like, you can keep this job. I will be a counselor or a social worker where it's safe. Amen. Yeah. 19-year-old Chris, 20-year-old Chris. Tell you what, buster in heaven, right? Have you ever had this moment with God where you handle God in a way that is not reverent because you're not fearing him but fearing some other thing? And what's amazing is I'm standing here today. I'm not a smoldering spot in the ground in Lily Lake, Illinois, right? Because I was just so brash and unkind towards my Savior in that moment. But we have these moments of fear that keep us from surrendering fully to the Lord. Nancy DeMoss Waglamuth, yes, that really is her last name, (laughs) says this, full surrender to Christ forces us to face the possibility or reality of giving up of the things that we consider most precious, some of the things we consider most important in life. We recognize that when we surrender to God, we're going to have to let go of some things that we have been holding on to so tightly. What would it mean for us to surrender to the Lord our health? You know, I hear people say things like, well, at least you have your health. But I've been looking around. That's not always true, is it? We feel like we can control ourselves into a better future. Do you know that the supplement industry in America is a multi-billion dollar industry? I I don't take a lot of medicine every day, but I do take very many supplements because they're supposed to make my body work better. And what's amazing is they, they do, right? Like when I add more natural B vitamin to me, I am a better person all day long because I need that B vitamin to work in my life and I'm not getting it from the food that I get from the grocery store. And so I do that, right? Like I I buy these supplements because I want to be in control of my health. But you know, it's the darndest thing. I still get sick. My joints still ache sometimes. My back still goes out sometimes. I have headaches occasionally. I don't sleep right all the time. There's so little that I can actually be in control of, but I like the illusion of control over my health. That's probably it. Thank you for that good word, brother. I better get over to the pseudo-pharmacy and ask them what I need. Oh, that's probably right. It's probably not like the pure organic form from, from God's perfect creation distilled down in the lab just for me, right? That's oh, perfect. Good. I think I just took that one. I'm feeling better already. So, so we, we hope for this. What if we surrendered our families? You know, if my health isn't something I can control and I lose that, what will happen if I surrender my family? What will happen if I surrender my material possessions or my career path or my retirement plans? What will happen if I really let go? And when we ask those questions, a lot of times we move into a place of fear. Well, that's going to stink. God could ask me to move to a ministry or a place that is absolutely unacceptable and uncomfortable. I might have to have a relationship that I don't want to have or a conversation that might pain me. God might ask me to be like Barbara Bentley and get moved to Guinea in Africa and then get stuckied there. Marry some person that I didn't even plan on being married. If you, if you know Barbara Bentley married Larry Stuckey and they didn't plan on getting married, right? They were just listening to the Lord. We, we don't know what God's plans are and when we hear that, what we say is, red alert, we don't know the plan. My life is planned out and it is on purpose, even if it's five minutes at a time, because I like being in control. And so many of us negatively project into God's ability to lead and provide for us because of our experience of fear and difficulty when we are not in control 
because we've experienced the pain of shame and we've experienced the pain of letdown. And so there are these four questions that tend to hit us. If I surrender fully to God, will I have what I need? Will I really have what I need? Will God give me enough? Will I be able to provide for my family? Will I have enough to make it through my retirement? What happens if God asks me to give all of my savings away? Would God really want me to be poor on this earth? In fact, it says that he has chosen the poor on this earth. He warns us that riches are dangerous, but I find my riches to be rather comforting and nice. So what if God threatens my wealth when I trust him? Is God really threatening your wealth or is he promising to bless you and lead you? And can you trust him in that gap in your heart? If I surrender to God fully, will I be happy? Will God make me miserable? I've heard people tell me that you don't have a ministry until God breaks your heart for something. And I I don't like having a broken heart. I like feeling happy. I started eating happy meals when I was five and I haven't stopped. Every meal is happy. And I want them all to be happy forever. We're unwilling to sacrifice our momentary happiness sometimes to step into greater joy. If I fully surrender to God, will I and my loved ones be safe? Will I and my loved ones be safe? This is a big one. I'm responsible to take care of this lady or to take care of this husband, to take care of my kids, even if they don't live at home anymore. And if I surrender to God, will will he actually take care of them like I can? I mean, he is not here. He doesn't put the band-aids on their knees. He doesn't receive the phone calls at 2 a.m. He's not doing that. That's me. And if I listen to the Lord, what if they suffer? Because suffering is inherently wrong. We all know that, right? But we think that, don't we? If I surrender fully to God, will my relational needs be met? Now, I don't mean to be crass, but at 20, I felt burning relational needs at times. And in coming to the Lord, it wasn't easy to say, those are not important needs anymore. When you look at that lady and everything inside goes, except for the Holy Spirit who says, no, Am I willing to let his no be my new no? And as we age, our relational needs become different. They stay the same, guys, in some ways. We could say that, yes. But they become different. And will I trust that God can meet those relational needs? In our culture, singleness is basically a four-letter word. It's easy to be single at 14, but it's painful at 44. And it's so searingly cold at 74. And I mean that with great respect and love. But will we trust God with our relational needs? If I fully surrender, will God meet my needs? So fear, fear is something that we have to recognize and open and look at if we're going to trust God. It's not easy to resolve these fears. God's promises are there for them. There is a promise from the Lord for every one of your fears. It's really there. But we have to be willing to accept that. Has anybody come up to you in the midst of a crisis and they have the answer to your crisis, but you've been in such a deep crisis mode that the only thing you can think is, shut up and let me be in crisis. I don't want your solution right now. I'm more comfortable in the fear and crisis than I am in moving forward because I can control the fear. At least it feels that way. But God has answers for you in your fear. So full surrender requires turning from our fears to trust God. Full surrender requires turning from our fears to trust God. The Bible word for this is repentance. To repent means to turn from something that is not God or of God and to turn to God to know Him instead of that thing. Repentance is at the heart of surrender and revival. Will you turn from your fears to trust God? Now that means that we have to first be willing to acknowledge our fears to really look at them boldly and recognize them for what they are. They're there. You know them, but maybe you can't name them. There's something powerful that happens when we can recognize and describe something. And when we can take that thing and turn it to the Lord, it starts to transform us. But in the midst of that, we need to start getting to know God more. 
Can you really trust someone that you don't know? Can you really? You can't. You can't trust someone if you don't know them. So you need to know the Lord in the midst of this even more than your fears. Psalm 910 says this, those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you. God is faithful. You know, a little while ago, I was listening to this guy talk. He's really good at biblical theology. The name in the Old Testament is Hashem. And what's great is that he traced this thread between everywhere it says the name of the Lord and the birth of God incarnate, Jesus. Jesus is the name of the Lord in the Old Testament. Jesus is knowable. Jesus is tangible. And Jesus is faithfully generous. He came for all people in all times, to be their Savior and to be their shepherd. Jesus is perfectly faithful, and he's willing to hold on to you and lift you up when you need him to. To know God's name is to know his character, is to trust him. When we start to know the Lord, we start to trust the Lord more and more. But you have to be willing to take this time to trust him to look to him and discover who he is. So do you need more trust? Quite simply, spend time getting to know God. If you're in this place where you want more surrender, where you're recognizing that you need to trust more, then spend some time getting to know God. Do you know that when it comes to time, everybody on the planet is equally enriched? Every person in this room has seven days in the coming week. Every person in this room has 24 hours in each of those days. And each of those hours is divided into 60 minutes. We could go on and on with this. But what I'm trying to say is this week your bank account of time is full and how you choose to spend it is largely up to you. You can spend your time meditating on your fears, worrying about your anxieties, or you can do like our brother Steve suggested. Let's cast those cares on God because he cares for you. And in the midst of that, the point is not to just cast them on God so that you can walk away. It's to cast them on God so that you can know God more in the midst of them. It, yeah, that's true. In the midst of that, you have to allow yourself to get more uncomfortable. Because when you're facing your fears and you see the presence of the Lord, there's this climax that's going to happen. Who are you going to choose? What are you going to choose to hold on to? To your fears? Or are you going to choose to grab on to the Lord and trust in Him in the midst of this? So spend some time getting to know God. I want to spend the remainder of our sermon looking at some times in the Word where people spent time getting to know God. And I'd like to say this before we go into this part of the sermon. I had to narrow this down. Uh, you might have heard somebody said once that there are 365 commands in the Bible to not fear in various forms. One for every day of the week. Uh, that's kind of like uh, jello truth. It fits in the bowl and it wiggles. If you search for fear not in the King James Version, it shows up about 70 times. That's far short of 365. And if you start inserting times where it talks about fear or addresses fear, the number grows to over 370. So that's there. Fuzzy math, it's there, right? It, it works. It's like you do math in Costco, and then you get to the end, and you realize there's way more in the cart than you thought. It's a lot like that, right? It's Costco math. Uh, but it's still a good deal for you because God is paying the bill when you get to the checkout aisle here. So the Bible has so many places where fear is addressed for us because fear is a product of sin, because sin causes hurt and letdown. So every human encounters an abundance of fear. Before sin, there was nothing to fear except for the Lord, and the Lord is good, so his fear is an awe fear. God, you are amazing, and you are greater than all, right? It's the fear of a loving father, knowing that God is the judge, but God is also the Savior. And so we approach the Lord recognizing his greatness. Now, the first one comes from Exodus 34, and it's this moment in Moses' life when we hear this amazing thing that God wants us to know about him. It says this, the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, 
forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. The Lord is merciful and loving and just. He is patient and wise. Growing up, I grew up in church, but I didn't know the Lord, and this term was tossed around because of a, a local homeless ministry called Hesed House. And so one day I was asking my mom, Mom, what's Hesed? And then she goes, well, it's not just Hesed. You've got to get the ch in there, right? So it's Hesed, and, and it means faithful, loving, mercy, and kindness. It's the Old Testament version of agape. It means God's perfect, unconditional love applied all the time. It's the leadoff of his heart. It's his version of Banaka, right? It's his freshness coming in all the time when we need it. Anybody remember Banaka from the 90s, that mint spray? Okay, good, right? Millennials, you can Google that. Uh, there's a funny Jim Carrey video about it. You'll enjoy it. So, uh, Banaka of the Lord is the agape of God. It's refreshing for us. It's good for us. And so this is the Lord's leadoff. Now, if you know the story of this, this is incredibly significant because in Exodus 33 and Exodus 32, the Lord has just redeemed Israel. He's gotten them out of slavery. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Follow me into the promised land. I will go before you and I will give you victory over your enemies and I will bring you to a land that is flowing with milk and honey where there is a harvest to harvest that you have not planted or cared for and it's going to be excellent for me to be your God and for you to be my people. And so he's made this wild promise and he's delivered them miraculously from Pharaoh and his armies. And in the midst of that, Moses goes up to the mountain to find out from the Lord, how should we live as a redeemed people? How does God want us to live according to his ways? And so Moses goes up on the mountain, and on the mountain, God gives him the ten words, the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments. And he comes, Moses comes down from the mountain, and he's been up there for a couple of days, because it takes time to receive this from the Lord for whatever reason. And he finds all of God's redeemed people worshiping a golden calf that they had just made because they gave up on God. God did not give up on them, but they gave up on God. They were worshiping an idol, and there was all sorts of crazy things happening in the camp. And it was this deep moment of rebellion. There was judgment, right? God just promised judgment, but there was salvation in that judgment and that they were redeemed people. And so Israel got smaller and their faith got greater in this. But right at the end of this, God says, you're going to go up to the promised land, but I am not going with you because you are a wicked and stubborn people and you don't want anything to do with me. And Moses pleads with God, God, we will go to the promised land, but I will not go if you do not go with us. I will stay right here with you because Moses knows that if God is not going with him, there is no success and there is no good. Moses is not digging his heels in. He's saying, Lord, you are the only one who can solve my fears. You are the only one who is great enough for my enemies. And so God says, okay, I will go with you because of your request. And then Moses says this, but can you also show me your glory? And God says, I cannot show you my face. You cannot see my face, but if you come back here in the morning, there's a cleft in the rock, and I will have you step into the cleft of the rock, and I will put my hand over you, and I will pass by you, and you will see my backside, the trail of my robe. Wow. So God's like, you can't see this yet, but I'll reveal myself to you. And he gives Moses two new tablets that day. And so Moses leaves the mountain, and he comes back in the morning to see the Lord, and he gets up on the, the mountain, and the mountain starts to shake, and God has him step into the cleft, and he puts his hand over the cleft, and then he passes by Moses, and he hears as God is passing by, the Lord, the Lord, the faithful and compassionate one, this truth about who God is. So Moses is in a place of fear, because God's people are rebellious, and he's responsible to lead them, and because God is just and right, and in the midst of his fear, God reveals that he is also merciful and faithful and loving all the time. Isn't that awesome? Moses took his fear to the Lord. Lord, I can't go there if you're not there. It won't go well for me. Would you be with me? And the Lord says, I'll be with me. And then Moses says, and I want to know you more. And God says, it's good for you to know me more, so I will reveal myself to you. When you're in your place of great fear, you're also in a place of powerful revelation because you will know God more in that place. Revelation means to receive more of who God is. So this is God's revelation. It's truth, right? But this revelation isn't always realized in our life until we experience that truth. It's not that our experience makes the truth true. 
It's that that truth becomes alive to us as we know God in the midst of this. How many of you have had a moment in your life where you're like Moses and you realize if God is not with you, then there's no point and it's not going to go well? I remember when we were having our first child, something went wrong in the delivery. Our midwife, who was this cool as a cucumber lady, all of a sudden hit the panic button inside, and my wife and I saw it in her eyes, and she goes, I don't have a heartbeat. And I thought, that's a funny joke. And she's like, your son doesn't have a heartbeat. Yeah, this isn't a joke anymore. Did I wear my brown pants? This is really scary in this moment. What am I going to do, God? And then she says, we need to do an emergency C-section right now. And they start unplugging my wife. And they start moving really fastly, like a, a swarm of bees around me. Now, the birthing room was really calm up to this point, And everything was going really well. It was copacetic. But in 30 seconds, my wife left the room with the whole medical team. And the last person in the room threw me this paper gown like a frisbee and said, be ready because we're coming back for you in six minutes. I looked at my watch. Six minutes. I better get ready. I'm getting dressed in this paper doctor get-up, and I've got the little hat on, I've got the little mask, and I look like a person who works at the cheese factory down in Tillamook on the production floor, right? And I'm standing there, and six minutes go by, and nobody comes. So now my fear is turning into panic. Lord, where are you? This is no good if you're not here. The panic starts to turn into eyeball sweat. Has this happened to you before? The panic so hard your eyes start sweating uncontrollably. And I start to cry out to the Lord, Lord, if you're not here with us, if you don't work this out, I'm not going to have a son. And sometimes they lose their wife too, God. So I need you to work a miracle. I need to know you in the midst of this, right? I knew trust for God, but I didn't know trust for God like that until that moment. Now, praise God, just a few minutes later, our son was delivered. And, and he's healthy and well, for the most part, you know, like every kid can be. Uh, but God met me in that place of fear. See, often when we're in a place of fear, we feel like everything's going to fall through. But when God is working in the midst of that fear, it's often the time that our faith comes more and more fully together. Now, would God have still grown my faith if I had to do it by a graveside a few weeks later? Sure. See, lack of fear doesn't mean perfect outcomes from our perspective. It just means God's outcomes from our perspective because we know God is faithful when we put our trust in him in the midst of fear. Uh, the next story comes from the book of Mark. You might know this story. The climax of the story is this verse right here, Mark 9, 24. It's a father crying out to Jesus. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe, help my unbelief. But there's this moment here before this where this father brings a son before Jesus and Jesus starts interviewing the father about the sickness. Well, tell me about your son that you want healed. What's going on? And, and the father starts to lay it out. He says he has convulsions. And, and sometimes the spirit in him throws him in the fire. And it's been this way since birth. And it's uncontrollable. And it's wild. Please, if you can do anything, do it. And Jesus says, if I can do anything, all things are possible for the one who believes. Wow. So this is a lifelong problem. This is a big issue. You know, when I have a lifelong problem, it's one thing. But when my kids have a lifelong problem, man, it hits in a bigger way. It breaks my heart when I see these things in my kid. These, these things, my kids, these things that I want to see God work in, the, the gaps in their faith, the growth they need in their character. I, I beg for the work in Jesus' life for them even more than I do for myself and quite frankly, even more than I do for you all because they're bonded to me and I'm responsible for them in a greater way. And so I feel that. Can you feel the Father's broken heart in this? And then Jesus drops that line. All things are possible for the one who believes. And the father knows, I just told Jesus I don't believe, if you can do anything. So the father wisely replies, I do believe. Help my unbelief. You know, when we have that moment of fear, where as Danny says, we're willing to be uncomfortable, it's okay to say, God, I don't know that my faith is big enough, but there's some faith here. And so I have faith in you, and will you help my disbelief? Would you help my unfaith, my lack of trust in you in the midst of the fear that I'm in? Isn't it amazing that God is so gracious that he meets us in that halfway place, that middle ground where even our faith is imperfect? The Bible says that faith saves. It says just a little faith saves. Just a little bit of faith from you leads to your salvation. 
Think of that moment in your life where you heard the gospel, you heard that Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you can be forgiven and that if you put your faith in him, you have everlasting life. How big was that faith in that moment? Man, for me, it felt so big, but the reality is it was just a little bit of faith. It was just the faith of salvation. And God meets you in that place and he starts growing your faith more and more and more. You might leave this sermon today and say, my whole life has been shaped by fear more than faith. Praise God for that truth and recognize that the little bit of faith that it took to acknowledge that is enough for God to grow your unbelief to the place where you have life-changing, ground-shaking faith when you face your fears. God is willing to meet you in your unbelief in the midst of your fear. David knew this, King David. So he says in Psalm 56, 3 through 4, when I am afraid... I will trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. Wait a minute. I love it when I do that to myself. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Wow. Do you realize that God has your whole life in his hands? Jesus warns his disciples, Fear not those who can kill the flesh. Fear the one who owns your soul. Put your fear in God. See, as we turn from our fears to God, it's a transference of fear. You are greater, God. You are bigger than any boogeyman I can face in my life. You're bigger than any problem I can face. And so I'm not going to fear them. I'm going to put my fear on you, Lord, and praise you, Lord, that you are good. And so my fear is awe and reverence at your power and your glory and your nature. Because when I put myself in your hands, I'm in the safest place I can be. The Lord is a sure refuge for those who trust in him. God tells Abraham, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. He is the, ones that are, the one that our hearts were made to trust. But so often we turn to other things to work in us when we fear. In Isaiah, this is written, I will bear the same until your own old age. I will bear you until your old age. I will bear you up when you turn gray. Isn't that so good, church? Some of you are thinking, hey, that's me. God cares about me right now, right? And some of you are like, I'm so glad. Because I can remember when I was in my 20s thinking, it's got to be so hard to be 40. You don't work right anymore, right? And now here I am. And I'm like, God still got me, right? Like it's not my own strength that makes life good. And I can imagine that when I'm 80, I'm going to know God's care even more. And I've seen that in so many of your lives as you approach and exceed 80, right? I will bear you up when you turn gray. I have made you and I will carry you. I will bear and rescue you. Okay, God's saying before me, you're still my baby. You're still my little princess. You're still my tiny warrior. And I am carrying you through life. You think your two legs got you through that trial? Oh, if you only knew how I carried you. Oh, if you only knew my tenderness and my compassion towards you. If you only knew how I bore you up. I want you to think about this. Every time you cry out to God, He is your loving Father, and He is going to rescue you and pick you up just like you would a crying infant because His compassion is towards you, because His heart breaks for you when you're going through difficulty and fear, because He loves you that much. Now, if you have your Bibles, I, wanna, I want you to turn to Acts 4 to what happens when the Holy Spirit enters our hearts in the midst of the fear that we work in. Acts 4, starting in verse 1, it says this, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and they took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So this is the start of the church. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. Who were the people that crucified Jesus? These ones! 
It's the very ones. These are the ones who fomented the crowd to chant, crucify him, crucify him. And if they could crucify the Son of God, it's nothing for them to crucify his servants. And they're right there. And Peter and John are surrounded. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Do they care what the answer is? The outcome's already determined in their hearts. They judge with unrighteous judgment. We already know this. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all and to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you, healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Wow, that sounds like somebody who's really afraid of God, not man. Isn't that awesome? I pray that I have that sort of boldness, and I pray you do as well. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were educated, uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Huh. Let's bring our weight upon them. Let's make it clear that we mean business. You better stop or else. The Sanhedrin had been murdering people for three centuries. They did it without breaking a sweat and without shedding a tear. These were not servants of God Most High. They were driven by their flesh and their lust for power and money. And they would steamroll anyone who needed it because they were in the way. And they were warning, Peter and John, you are in our way. You will not threaten our control and our grip of these people. Wow. That's like the mob showing you the concrete bag next to the lake, right? We could teach you to swim tomorrow. Just keep it up, buddy. Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. And they found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. After they were, were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and elders had said to them. There were real threats. This was real danger. Church, what should we do? They want to shut us down. What should our response be? Should we all just leave town? Are they rejecting us? Remember, Jesus said that we should leave people who reject us and go to a new town. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you catch that? Master, what is that? That's a place of submission, a place of surrender. Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand against the rulers and assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. That's Psalm 2. For in fact... In this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, God, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with boldness, with all boldness. Wow. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs, and wonders are performed throughout you, through your name and your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. 
Wow. Let's just put it this way. Not that way. This way. Powerful things happen when we transform our fears to trust and fully surrender to God. Powerful things happen when we fully transform our fears to trust in God. But it takes an honest look at those fears. You know, I want to encourage you to do something today. I want to encourage you to start a fear journal. But it's really going to be a faith journal. See, if you're unwilling to acknowledge your fears and recognize them, then you're unwilling to let God into them. And if you're unwilling to let God into them, then where is his power and love going to affect them? It's not. And so this is what it looks like. You just open a notebook and you calm your heart. And you get to that place that Steve described, that place of stillness before God. You control your breathing and you focus your thoughts. And then you just say, Lord, bring my fears to mind. And you just write it down. And when you write it down, you say, Lord, this is now your fear. Thank you that you're capable of taking care of it. And you do that until there's no fears left. And then you just take a moment and you pray, Lord, you created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. These are the problems that I'm facing. I need to know what I'm supposed to do with these. And I need you to lead me in your way to be bold and humble before you, just like your disciples in the first century. And so would you work in these fears and will you draw my heart to follow you more and more? Now, the ground might not shake, which you're going to be happy about because you won't have to have a contractor over the next day. But God will work in your heart and God will work in your life and his love and the impact of his power will grow more and more in your midst and in your life. Wouldn't that be good? Let's commit ourselves to do that today. Father, we we just want to take this moment and acknowledge the reality that that we have fear. That we have fears in life about what will happen if we give you control over everything. But we also have faith. And we want you to be in control of everything. And so we pray, God, that you would meet us in this place of our small faith and our great fears because we know that you are a greater God. We pray, God, that you would help us to articulate the things that we are holding on to, the fears that are driving us. We want to be happy, God. We want to be satisfied. We want to be comfortable, God. Let's face it, we want to be rich. But God, we surrender these things to you and these fears to you so that you will work. And we pray, God, that you would lead us into boldness in Jesus through our surrender to you. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.